While you're taking your seats, if you take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 25 and yeah, Genesis 25. As you turn there, we finally come to the life of the end of the great patriarch Abraham. And as you think about all of the things that we've seen in Abraham's life, it is really those things that are left behind. And of course, what's left behind in Abraham's life is he is the role model for faith by the time we get to the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. And so as Abraham is about to fade off the scene, we see the rest of his family come into play. Those that are now going to come on to the the front burner, so to speak. They've, They've been boiling on the back of the stove. And all of a sudden... Now we're going to be focusing on Isaac, and we're going to see Ishmael fade out of the the picture in this chapter as well. But what we do in our lives and the legacy that we leave is often expressed in our children. The decisions that we make throughout our time while we're on this earth very often are expressed in our children. And we're going to see that tonight. As you think about all the things that are going on in the world, and you think about your own life, you think about the the way that Abraham's life has proceeded. He's made a real tangled mess out of what could have been a really simply wonderful calling that God placed on his life. And I think there's a lesson here for us tonight. As I was going over my notes this afternoon, I was just sitting down and I I started to think about my own life in relationship to this basic principle. Oh, if I had only known when I was in my 20s what the Lord was going to do with me when I got to my, mid to, to my mid-30s, um, I could have skipped a whole bunch of stuff that not only was meaningless, um, but was, was negative in that sense. And I believe that Abraham's life was open to the Lord speaking into it, but there are times that we can see that Abraham wasn't really listening to the Lord. And he was acting in his fleshly impulses, And we have some of that left over uh, here in chapter 25. And so would you pray with me? We'll pick up in verse 1. First with a genealogy of some kids uh, that are born to a woman named Keturah. Father, thank you for blessing us with your presence in our lives through the Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would interpret uh, your own word, that you'd speak to us through it. That, Lord, we would learn to... Uh, bypass some of these difficult areas by listening to your voice uh, before the trouble comes, not having you need to clean up the messes that we make in our lives at a later date. And so, God, we give you this time. Speak through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you look in the background of this photo, this is actually Abraham's tomb. This is the cave of Malpeca. Uh, It's in the city of Hebron, which is in the West Bank 
And so as you think about it, it's a real place. Um, one of the oldest continuously inhabited uh, houses of worship in the entire world is built over this particular tomb. Uh, it's the tomb of the patriarchs as it's known there. Uh, it is a very large mosque as are many of the, of the places that were associated with uh, the Jewish people. Um, but there is a place still to this day uh, that you could go and people would direct you and they would say, right over there, that's where Father Abraham was buried. Verse 1, Abraham again took a wife and her name was Keturah. And you might remember a little history of Keturah uh, and, and we'll get to that in just a little bit. And she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan begot Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushem, and Lehumem. And these are the sons of Midian, and they were Ephath, Epher, Hanok, Abda, Aldala, and these were the children of Keturah. And so it begins with a genealogy, and whenever we have genealogies, remember that the whole of the Old Testament is really focused in on remembering a single bloodline. And that bloodline is really the, the bloodline of Messiah, of Jesus himself. But along the way, we get little remnants of lots of different families that will come into play throughout the history of the children of Israel because it will be from the children of Israel that Messiah will come. And so we have pictures here uh, of the tangled web, ex- exactly as Walter Scott said in, in his play, Marmion. He, he, he said, oh, what a tangled web we weave when at first we do tempt to deceive or practice to deceive or make a life of deception. Abraham had made a life of trying to, to work things out his own way. When he knew what God wanted to do, sometimes he was a little less than effective at accomplishing that, and we certainly see that throughout his life. And in fact, when we get to the first book of Chronicles, in Chronicles, First Chronicles chapter 1, we get to verse 32, we're going to find out that Keturah was in fact one of Abraham's concubines. And people often ask, and this is one of those questions especially that young people will ask, uh, they're usually looking for some type of battle or they're looking for some type of uh, a, a little bit of scandal, if you will, from the, from the Old Testament. Uh, they'll ask, well, why did God allow men to have concubines in the Bible? And so I want to address that before we move on. In the Old Testament, you have, to, you have to look at things in the context of the time of the Old Testament. And there are a couple of things that first and foremost we need to remember that concubines... Uh, did not have the totally negative connotation that they would have today, even though certainly it was an, an allowance by God during that time, and it was never approved by God, nor was it ordained by God. In other words, God never stepped into the picture and said, you know, this is not working out really well, so I'm going to ordain the role of a concubine in a man's life. That never happened. It wasn't said. It was never implied And so from God's perspective, this, like many things, falls in the category of things that God allowed to happen 
that he did not ordain, nor did he tell anyone ever to do. So make sure that when you start thinking of these things, you think of them from God's perspective. So while God allowed it, uh, this was a voluntary arrangement in a period of time in human history when a couple of things existed that are important to remember. Number one, women had zero rights in society. The man owned everything. And in fact, if you were a woman and you were not married, um, there's a very high degree of likelihood that you were not going to live very long. And in fact, your life was always tied into a man. And as unfair as that seems to us at this point in human history, it, it was the case then. And so in some ways, this allowance for someone who was unmarried, a woman to be brought into this man's home, albeit for less than pure reasons, uh, it certainly was preferable to what might occur were that not the case, which is likely starvation, which is likely no protection, which is you're open to the societal uh, violence that existed at the time. And so uh, as, a matter of, as a matter of something better than the alternative of likely death, uh, concubines were allowed in, in the lives of some of the greatest men in the Bible. And at the same time, we need to recognize that neither King David nor King Solomon uh, ever had anything good happen in their lives from the fact that they had concubines. In fact, their lives were completely turned upside down from the very fact. And so just like God allowed divorce, as he said, uh, through Moses, just as he also allowed uh, polygamous uh, relationships to occur in the Old Testament, never did he diverge from what he had said in Genesis chapter 2 in creating Adam and creating one woman for one man, and that was to be, uh, as we have already seen, the law first mentioned, this is how God wants these things. But he allowed this particular situation to exist for a period of time. Unmarried women during ancient times were completely dependent on other family members. Uh, they were dependent specifically on fathers and brothers. Uh, and if for some reason they had no family, uh, if the husband died or if they were divorced, it was a very, very, very uh, sketchy situation. And so uh, because there was no social safety net because there was no educational system there was no job training uh, in fact there were no jobs uh, you, you existed in, in a society where most everyone lived by subsistence and so this was just slightly preferable to having your life completely turned upside down and, and forcing you into a, a situation that would be terrible and so don't try and make in a, a case that because God never condemned it, and that is the truth of Scripture. There are no verses in all the Bible where God said, thou shalt not ever keep concubines. God also never said you should ever have a concubine. So there are all kinds of things that fall into that category of silence from God. And because it was allowed culturally, uh, God simply allowed it, and that's all he did. So when Sarah dies, here's where this gets a little bit interesting. Keturah is already Abraham's concubine. 
And so Abraham actually does what is the more noble thing, and he actually marries her. And so she now becomes his wife, and they bear six children together, uh, even at a very, very late age. And so um, here, Abraham lives long enough to definitely regret some of his mistakes. And I think one of the lessons from this, and it's important for us, uh, as Abraham and Keturah manage to have these six children, and uh, they, they, they bring them into the world, those six children end up being a tremendous problem for the Jewish people. And we're going to look at a little bit of their history. Abraham's going to live for another 35 years after, uh, after Isaac marries. And so there is a little bit of time there. And remember, part of the Abrahamic covenant was that Abraham would become a father of not just a bunch of kids, but a father of nations, ethnos. Ethnicities is the way we would look at it. And so as he's looking at that, he's taking that role fairly seriously. And he now has a tremendous number of children, and they are not all from the same mother. And yet, while God would have surely preferred that Abraham had had the one wife and lived in that marital relationship... Uh, God's actually going to, to show Abraham a little bit of why he said that as these kids come on the scene of, of Keturah's six sons, uh, Zimran, Ishbak, Shua, and, and Medan, have not been actually identified anywhere in human history. Uh, but uh, but Jokshan, the, the one of the two sons who brings forth uh, uh, Sheba and Dedan, who we'll meet later in, in the book of Isaiah, um, but as, as he begins to live out his life, um, we're going to find that he comes into place because he's going to bring in Midian. And Midian is going to birth the Midianite people who are one of the arch enemies of the children of Israel. Um, from them will come the Ishmaelites and the Moabites and the Amalekites and so you can kind of see how at the end of his life, he kind of stumbles across the finish line and actually produces the children that are going to become the mortal enemies of the children of Israel because he had a concubine. So it didn't work out all that well. And in fact, had he not done it, the children of Israel would have lost four of their greatest enemy states if Abraham had thought a little differently about that particular portion of his life. And so you can live long enough to regret some very serious mistakes. Maybe they don't show up right away. But know this. Mistakes have consequences. And in this case, the children of Israel to this day are still suffering some of the damage that was done as Abraham did not do what God completely told him to do, which is, this is your wife, this is the woman I want you to have children with, and so these other children birth some nations that are going to cause some tremendous problems for him. Verse 5, and Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward. And so here's a little important piece of information. 
You have the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the land of Israel today. And while it was larger then, nonetheless, what is to the east of the land of Israel? And whether you're looking at it from the old boundaries or the new boundaries, if you know anything about geography, if you know anything about the nations of the world, what is to the east of Israel is all of the nations who are the enemies of the nation Israel. Descendants of Ishmael. Away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the east is where he sends them. And historically, as we look at these people, they they in essence become the descendants of what we would call the modern-day Arab nations. And so that includes virtually all of the Middle East except for Israel, Israel proper. That would be Jordan, that would be Syria, that would be Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Lebanon. Those nations which are directly to the east and to the north as well. Even to the south of them, into Egypt. Uh, some, of the, some of the nomadic peoples wandered. And as Abraham sends them out, you can kind of see how this is getting started. He gives a vast majority of his estate to guess who? Isaac, the son of promise. So the portions that everybody else got were less than that, and they're wandering to the east. And I'll show you in just a moment what that looks like when you talk about wandering to the east. To the east of the land of promise, this beautiful land called Canaan, well watered by the Jordan River, the Sea of Galilee, this this region that is not only fertile, uh, but able to produce crops, to the east of it is a whole bunch of nothing but desert. And it goes forever, more than a thousand miles of desert. And so limited provision, limited water, absolutely some of the most inhabitable space on the, uninhabitable space on the planet. And, and here's where you guys get to go, but my promised son is going to stay here in the promised land. It's left its mark to this day. Remember that Hagar also was a concubine. So you have Ishmael and you have the Midianites, the Amalekites, all of the ites. The ite people who end up being the mortal enemies coming out of this relationship that Abraham has with these concubines. That didn't work out real well and still isn't working out really well. Abraham is going to pass from the the scene, verse 7. Let's take a look at what happens here. And Abraham dies, verse 7. This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life which he lived. 175 years. And then Abraham breathed his last, died in a good old age, a man, an old man, and full of years. And I want you to notice something, underline it, highlight it, do whatever you do in your Bible. And he was gathered together with his people. Doesn't say he was gathered together with Sarah. It doesn't say that he was gathered together with just his family. It says he was gathered together with his people, and that is an accurate translation into English uh, from the original Hebrew. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave 
of Machpelah. And so he's laid to rest, which is before Mamre, which is modern-day Hebron, by the way, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar the Hittite. We see the Hittites and other people that come on the scene that are not friendly to Abraham. Amen? So you can kind of see the cumulative effect of all of these little places where Abraham compromised. Where Abraham had just a little bit of sin. There was a a righteous man behind all of this. But there was just enough of Adam left in him. Uh, that we see the cumulative effect of the, of the mistakes throughout Abraham's life. The field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth, and there Abraham was buried, and Sarah his wife. And it came to pass, after the death of Abraham, that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt at Ber Lahai Roi, the springs of the God who sees. And so as you look at these verses, you find this unremarkable passage where all of a sudden here's this incredibly famous guy that makes, makes his way all the way into the New Testament. You have him listed as really the father of faith, and yet he's just dead. And he's drawn together with his people. Notice what it says. He was gathered together. And since none of his ancestors, not one of them, were buried in that same cave, it can't simply refer to death and burial. So there's a little bit of a piece of insight here that we can learn from this passage. Where did Abraham go? Where, where did he hang out? What happened to Abraham? He was gathered together with the rest of his kinfolk. Somewhere. We're told in Luke chapter 16, if you want to turn there. We'll pick up in verse 19. Luke 16, verse 19. And there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. And moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And so it was that the beggar died and was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. It's the exact same word as paradise, by the way. And the rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So why do you think they would call it Abraham's bosom? And why would it be able to see Abraham if Abraham wasn't there? Well, the fact of the matter is, Abraham was there. And then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things 
and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. So you're getting the picture. And besides this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. So that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. And he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. So Moses is going to come on the scene after Abraham, right? And so here's somebody that's alive that's being spoken to. And the prophets would come after Moses all the way up until 400 years before Jesus is born. So he's saying, look, they're going to have a voice. There will be people speaking into their lives all throughout history. That's not the problem. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And so you have this crazy picture of some place at a point in time where there are two categories of people who have died. On one side, called paradise, there are those who are being comforted. On the other side, called Hades, there are those who are in torment. Both places called Sheol, which simply means the abode of the dead. And so there was a point in time before Jesus paid the price for our sin and made it possible for us to actually go to heaven that the dead were retained in two places that were in the same area. And they were separated. A great gulf fixed between them. And on one side, those who died in faith. And on the other side, those who died without faith. Obviously, Abraham is on the side of faith. Amen? And so here they are both in the abode of the dead. And so what is Abraham's bosom or Sheol, the abode of the dead? There's two compartments that are mentioned there that used to both contain souls of dead people. One for the righteous and one for the unrighteous. One in faith, one without faith. And if you now turn to Ephesians chapter 4, Pick up in verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. We're going to receive heaven because of the gift of grace that has been given to us through Christ Jesus by believing in him by faith. That's the gift. That's the grace gift, ultimately resulting in us going to heaven And therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. The Apostle Paul then explains what he's getting at. Verse 9. And now this he ascended, 
What does it mean but that he first also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fulfill all things. So where do you think Jesus went when he died? He went and visited Abraham and Lazarus who were waiting in faith for the sacrifice to be made because Jesus, until that time, had not said, to tell us die, it is finished. And so until that point in time, everybody's playing the waiting game. The only question is, what are you waiting for? Final judgment or Jesus to finish the work on the cross? And so when Jesus finished the work, he went and led captivity out of their captivity and took them with him to heaven. He emptied Abraham's bosom on the righteous side. It's empty. There's nobody there anymore. But here's the other part. The unrighteous are still there. They're still waiting final judgment. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. And then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, whose faith the earth from the, whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, for there was found no place for them. Remember that this is after the end of the tribulation, the battle of Armageddon. The Lord is, is going to return. He's come back. The, the battle is fought. And this is the final, last hurrah of, of humankind's ability to uh, sin of their own volition. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by their works, according to the things which are written in the other books. And the sea gave up her dead who were in it, and death, and oops, there it is, Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. So to the end of the Battle of Armageddon to the final day, to the judgment after the millennial reign, those dead are going to stay there. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one according to his works. And then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. That's why it's important that you be born again. Because you don't want to be dying twice. You want to die once. And then Jesus. Amen? And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Very simple explanation by the author of the book of Revelation, John. Who says, one day, that final compartment, which still has the unrighteous dead in it, is also going to be dealt with. Right now, they're still waiting judgment. And so those dead see the fruit of their lives, the works. They see that they, they have no desire for the things of God. And so when Abraham was buried and Sarah was buried in that cave near Mamre, uh, here you have this incredible picture of Abraham's faith not being the equivalent of Jesus already having died, but being sufficient for him to receive the grace of God ahead of the sacrifice of Christ so that when Christ actually does die, that is accounted unto him as righteousness. 
So there's always only been one way for anyone to go to heaven. So this is how God dealt with every last Old Testament saint who died believing Messiah would come and did not see him yet. So God was completely fair. And he's also being true that there is no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. So Jesus is the salvation of those who died in the Old Testament. And Jesus is the salvation of those who've died since he died. Amen? That's how it all gets balanced out. So for those that have had, people have that question. They go, well, what happened to all those people? Now you know. Abraham's bosom was where Abraham went and he resided there uh, for the better part of 2,000 years, actually. Waiting in faith. But notice that it was a place where he was comforted. He, he wasn't suffering. He, he was blessed. And the people that were on the suffering side could see the difference between the two. What about poor Ishmael? Ishmael's going to live to be 137 years old. And he actually does pretty well for himself. Verse 12, here in Genesis 25. And now this is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom he, who was born to Hagar the Egyptian. Now remember, Hagar also was a concubine. So again, you can see the, the problematic not allowing God to do things God's way. If there's a lesson in this, let God do God's things God's way. Listen to him. Wait. And if he hasn't moved, don't move. Sarah's maidservant who, who bore, bore him to Abraham. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names according to their generations. And so we have another genealogy. The firstborn of Ishmael. Nebajoth, and then Kedar, Adbeel, Nibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadar, Tema, Chatur, Nafesh, and Kedema. And these were the sons of Ishmael. And these were their names by their towns. Now notice this. This is how you can kind of begin to see how all of these promises that were made to Abraham are coming true. They're not just people. They're founders of towns, ultimately ethnicities. They're, they're actually going to bring forth communities, way more than just a son here or there. Uh, these, these are the sons uh, that are going to bring forth 12 princes, according to their, check it out, nations. It, it doesn't just simply say they had a few kids and they did okay for themselves. They literally are going to populate that portion of the world. And these were the years of life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. We believe Ishmael is gathered with his people still awaiting the judgment of the Lord. There's, there's nothing in the scriptural record that says that Ishmael was a man of faith. He was raised in the same household as Isaac. And in fact, he's revered by the Muslim faith. 
but he was gathered together with his people. And they dwelt from Havilah, as far as Shur, which is the east of Egypt. As you go towards Assyria, and he died in the presence of all of his brethren, and these are the generations of Ishmael. As in the case of Keturah's sons, these are specific sons, uh, and it's really, really difficult to identify a vast majority of them um, by their by their names as we have them here in Scripture, except for a couple, and one of them is Nebajoth. And he's been linked to, historically, very, very clearly to the ancestors of the Nabataeans. The Nabataeans are responsible for this place. That would be the rock city of Petra. It's in modern-day Jordan. Uh, It's in the land of Edom, uh, which we're going to bump into the founder of the land of Edom very, very shortly as we continue our journey here through the book of Genesis. And of course, as you, as you look at this absolutely fantastic city, when we were there a couple of years ago, we had an opportunity to, to walk from the mouth down through the seek and through the treasury. There is an amphitheater there. And that amphitheater is carved out of solid stone. It seats 8,000 people. It is in the middle of absolutely nowhere. It's mind-boggling. Every bit of the, this valley, it's, it's believed at one point in time there were at least fifty to 75,000 inhabitants. Uh, it could easily hold tens uh, of times that. It, uh, probably a million people could fit in there quite easily, really. All throughout the entire canyon, there are water courses where rainwater is collected and cisterns collect, and small dams that were built. Uh, this was a lush area. This was the area of the eldest son of Ishmael. The region of the Edomites, Edom meaning red, which is modern day Jordan. And here is the city of Petra. If you travel there today, uh, it doesn't look too much different than it looked then, except people have brighter colors. They're still riding camels. It's just that it costs you 20 bucks. <laughs> you don't have a trading caravan. But as you leave and, and go back through the Seek, which is that over in the right side of that photo that as you were looking at it, um, it travels about three and a half miles up that canyon. Most places it's less than 50 feet wide. In a lot of it, it's 20 feet or less. And through it, there's a rock carved niche that flows water into the canyon. It's an absolutely mind-bogglingly spectacular place. So... Ishmael did okay for himself. This is the land of his ancestors. He managed to, to make one of the seven wonders of the ancient world that was carved out by the ancestors of Ishmael. And so God kept his word. Remember, he said he was going to bless all of the sons, not just Isaac, not just the son of promise, but he blessed all of the sons. And that's still true to this day. He's going to die at the age of 137. Uh, And though it's difficult to precisely trace all of these ancestors, uh, it's pretty clear that they are are the founders of most of the modern-day Arabic people. If you travel uh, from Petra in in Jordan and you travel back through the Wadi Musa, 
uh, is mind-bogglingly beautiful, but is also uh, some of the most dry, uninhabitable desert that you've ever seen. And so they managed to do quite well because the Lord sent them out to the east. Ishmael, it says, literally fell, or he, he, it says he died, but he literally fell in front of all of his brethren. So it appears that he was still ruling and reigning and, and then pretty much dropped over dead. What's the lesson we can learn as we wrap this passage up? I think the big thing is, what are we teaching our kids? What legacy are we leaving our kids? Because... Abraham recognized he had other children and he did the best that he could, but his mistakes compounded and his children actually paid the price for a lot of it. There were children in his life that he was not supposed to have, frankly. It's pretty clear from the biblical record that God didn't plan all of these children to be born. And so God making good in his promises blesses all of them but they were not blessed the way Isaac was blessed. Their existence has been hard. And, I, and Ishmael pictures here the natural or the unsaved person who's outside of faith, who doesn't walk in faith. He learned to not walk in faith because his dad didn't walk in faith. His dad made mistakes. And while he would follow and make his own mistakes, and it was that that God would hold him accountable to, He was given a pretty poor example at times through his father Abraham, who was a man of faith. So be careful what mistakes you make, especially in front of your children. Because they're watching, they're learning, they're they're seeing, how how does dad handle this? How does mom handle this situation? You see, we want our kids to learn what they should learn from us, which is how to walk with the Lord. We don't don't want to just pass along a, a natural life or living to our kids. We want our kids to be blessed exactly as Ephesians chapter 1 says. We want them blessed with every spiritual blessing. If we want them blessed with every spiritual blessing, then we need to live our lives according to the principles and practices of God's word and pass that along to them as a heritage so that they have their best chance for success. That passage in Ephesians 1 leads us to understand the grace of God, the redemption of the cross. That's the kind of legacy that our children should see in us before they see anything else. Before you answer the questions about, you know, drugs and alcohol and dating, answer the question about who is Lord in your own life. Make sure that your kids know that Jesus Christ is Lord in your home. Because that's the one thing they're going to remember. And if they know that's true, then some of those mistakes will actually be covered by the grace of God. But if you don't show them Jesus first, they're left to wonder where you're getting your instruction from life from. And then they're prone to seek to find their own way, uh, just as, as we do at times. Isaac's most important legacy uh, was the spiritual wealth that he got from his father and mother. Notice this. Isaac was blessed, to be sure. But Isaac got all of the spiritual blessing. He, he understood knowing and trusting in the living God. 
He, he understood being part of the covenant blessings. He, he understood that God was gracious to Abraham and Sarah. We don't want to, to leave any other kind of legacy to our own kids. We want them to know Jesus. We want them to trust the Lord and leave a rich heritage of faith. Amen?